All right. In our last segment, we praised Jesse Ventura's book, American Conspiracies. And in his discussion of the JFK assassination, he referred to media critic Jerry Polakoff. Talking about the Warren Commission, Jerry noted that the press was thereby weaving a web that would inevitably commit it to the official findings. Um, Jerry Polakoff's, of course, well known to you, dear listener, having been on the show many times and He's running for office in Pennsylvania, it turns out. We find that newsworthy, and we're going to go to him now to talk about that directly. Welcome back, Jerry Polikoff. Hey, it's good to be back. You, uh, you uh, are running for the State House in Pennsylvania. Let's talk about that. I am running for the State House in Pennsylvania. I, I uh, have been very active in the single-payer health care movement here. And uh, much to my surprise, well, I guess we've made a lot of progress here. We have a... Uh, an economic impact study uh, resolution that has been approved by two-thirds of the um, state senate here, uh, but still won't be allowed to the uh, floor for a vote. Um, but in the progress, in the process of pushing all this, you know, we got the um, Lancaster City Council, the Lancaster County Democratic Committee, several local uh, uh, Democratic committees to uh, endorse the bill. And I guess in the process, they decided maybe I would be a good candidate. So they came to me one day, to me one day and said, would you like to run for the open seat in the uh, 41st District? And I said, no. <laughs> and uh, they came back and finally convinced me that uh, I should consider doing it. I'm not sure <laughs> exactly why, but I guess when you get an opportunity like that, you have to pursue it. But I think it's really interesting that... Uh, a uh, you know somebody like me is now being pushed in, as an establishment candidate. I have to jump in and ask you uh, a, a, the question they asked in that movie with Robert Redford, the candidate. Uh, at this point, what if you win? <laughs> well, you know, I'm that, that'll be very interesting. I'm starting to think I can win. I'm running against a very right wing Republican who basically makes Rick Santorum look like a liberal, and Rick Santorum is his mentor. I mean, the opportunity to beat somebody like that, and, and, and it's somebody who's obviously being groomed for something bigger, I, I think I have to rise to that challenge and try to do that. And, and uh, I'm, I'm running as a, um, as a reform candidate. I mean, we, we have a legislature here that uh, the Pennsylvania legislature is the most expensive in the United States, more expensive than California which is almost four times our population. That's a surprise. Um, so I'm running uh, part of my campaign is single-payer health care. Part of my campaign is radically reducing the size of our legislature, doing away with all of the wonderful spiffs that, that um, uh, they have here. I, you know, for example, the uh, legislators have wonderful health care, and I don't <laughs> begrudge them that at all, but... <laughs> They pay nothing for it, and they begrudge the rest of the uh, population of Pennsylvania from having any health care. Kind of getting psyched to do this, and if I win, that, that'll that be a real challenge. And I'm in it to win. Wow. When they asked me to run, I said, you know, if I do run, I will run to win. Well, as this goes on, we will we'll bring you back uh, throughout the summer and fall to see as the election draws near and see uh, if you can't uh, if you can be a David knocking off Goliath, I guess it were. Well, it, it, it's a new uh, new experience for me. I am getting psyched, and I think I can win. 
you've got some endorsements here looking at your at your web page uh, which is I guess polikoff41st.com got quite a few uh, uh, prominent people in Pennsylvania well, I've been endorsed by Joe Sestak who is the uh, uh, nominated candidate for Senate I've been there are things that aren't on there I've been endorsed by Kate Michaelman the former president of NARAL and she'll be taking a major role in my campaign excellent I've been endorsed by uh, the Progressive Majority, which is a very progressive organization. You know, most Democrats don't even want to admit that they're progressives. I'm a proud progressive, and I really think that uh, I can win running as a progressive. And when I knock on doors, even Republicans don't seem to to, uh, shy away from that word. I think it's... uh, it's a word to be proud of, and, and I think I can win it. Well, Jerry, we're with you all the way, and, uh, you know, we need to have you come back on this show and talk about that. I know you've done a lot of research into healthcare in America, probably more than anybody I know, certainly more than I have, and uh, we need to talk about that <laughs> as, uh, as the election draws near because I know that you feel very, very strongly about a lot of that. Well, I do, and I'd love to talk more about it. Jerry Polikoff, we will have you do exactly that. And in the meantime, see if you get that campaign, uh, you know, uh, in in full gear. Well, thank you. (laughs) All right. I I know that uh, Jerry is very disappointed with uh, the efforts that uh, our president has been making in an awful lot of areas. But I don't underestimate the political forces that are aligned against him, which are determined to make sure he doesn't uh, get much done. How about the folks out in Des Moines, Iowa, that put a billboard up to compare uh, President Obama to Adolf Hitler and Vladimir Lenin? There's a picture of this in the Sacramento Bee showing uh, Hitler on the left under National Socialism, uh, Lenin on the right under Marxist Socialism, and Obama's picture in the middle under Democrat Socialism. Apparently even the national leaders of the Tea Party are backing away from this one, said Shelby Blakely. That's just a waste of money, time, resources, and it's not going to further our cause. It's going to make people think that the Tea Party is full of a bunch of right-wing fringe people. And that's not true. I mean, you know, I think of the picture that was in the Sacramento Bee a month ago showing oil workers who oppose a moratorium on deep water drilling, listening to Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal holding up signs saying, Save American Jobs. Well, of course, uh, the bookings in all the various resorts along the Gulf Coast are off by a half, which is going to have a rather devastating effect on American jobs. And, of course, then there's the various uh, uh, jobs in the fishery industries taking a giant hit. Of course, breaking news, BP's claiming they've got a a cap on this well, and they're going to see now if it's working or not. Uh, We hope that it is. But it is amazing what a concerted effort can do in terms of shaping how people think of things uh, as portrayed in the American media. They've gotten awfully good through trial and error. We did like the article in Mental Floss on the July-August issue about how propaganda sometimes backfires. The Nazi party uh, did have some pretty uh, pretty crack propagandists among its uh, uh, advocates. But we liked uh, the article about uh, the plan they had in World War II to wage psychological warfare against the Allies in a rather unusual way. The Axis powers would fly over enemy camps and drop photos of buxom ladies on the troops. The, the twist was that most of the women were pictured in passionate embraces with strange men. Apparently the hope, according to German officials, were to get GIs thinking about their wives and girlfriends back home, specifically thinking about being unfaithful. 
The Axis propaganda wasn't always so convoluted. Sometimes the Germans would just drop pictures of scantily clad women posing over quotes such as, you can enjoy this if you surrender, noted the editors of Mental Floss. Uh, giving out free pictures of sexy women didn't turn out to be the best way to demoralize soldiers. Far from upsetting the GIs, they began collecting the pictures to use them as pinups. Article also noted a rather sad PR effort here in the United States, which was back in 1975, President Jerry Ford signed the Metric Conversion Act, and the U.S. supposedly embarked on a full-fledged campaign to join the rest of the world in using meters and grams. The federal government funded metric-touting posters, pamphlets, and TV spots, including a series of animated shorts by the same team that did Schoolhouse Rock. There was even an answering service set up to help confused citizens. Noted mental flaws, it turned out that Americans weren't exactly rushing out to borrow 225 grams of sugar from their neighbors or ask the grocer for 3.79 liters of milk. In 1982, Ronald Reagan cut the campaign's funding. Reagan seemed to just smell a rat in all of this metric stuff. Instead, the 40th president supported voluntary metrification which I guess is kind of like, you know, voluntary carbon emission reductions and all the other voluntary programs which uh, industry is very fond of. I know a lot of you remember the highway signs we used to have all over California that would list the mileage to various places along with the kilometer equivalents. Presumably those are all sitting in warehouses somewhere. All right, let's talk about some science topics. Article by Ted Cox in the Sacramento News and Review a couple months back. We're just now getting to. Notes that a lot of our uh, uh, nurseries and mega stores are selling plants that are really poorly adapted to our Mediterranean climate. Such as English ivy. Local biology professor G.O. Graining said, It's bad for the environment and high maintenance. Graining is an adjunct professor of biological sciences at Sacramento State. And notes that uh, local homeowners do appear to be adopting some region-appropriate gardens, and he attributes uh, that trend to local governments cracking down on water usage and some corporate responsibility. When choosing plants, Dr. Graining notes, it's best to keep four characteristics in mind, that it's native to the region, that it's drought-resistant, that it's non-invasive, and that it's low-maintenance. And I have to agree, seeing what English ivy does to fences is, is a horrible thing. Nasty plant gets in there and just basically rots the wood out. And speaking of plant disasters, the uh, Economist magazine's been giving quite a bit of ink to the fact that there's a new wheat rust that appears to be expanding out of Africa and into the world's uh, wheat-growing regions. Curious sidelight to the article about this was that uh, it turns out that wheat rust was what spurred the Green Revolution. And of course, there the huge increase in crop yields that started back in the 1940s. Turns out that Norman Borlaug, the great American agronomist who uh, died last year, conducted his original research into wheat rust. And after 10 years of painstakingly crossbreeding, he isolated a gene that resisted the uh, fungal pest. Noted the economist, by wonderful good fortune, the gene... SR31 also boosted yields, and not just because the plants were impervious to rust. So by accident, selecting out a, uh, a wheat strain that was resistant to this rust 
made it a much more productive crop. This is a major reason why the world's uh, food production has been able to keep up with the world's explosive increase in population. But unfortunately, now that uh, some wheat rust in Africa has learned uh, to um, thwart this resistant gene, there could be quite a bit of trouble on the horizon. We're going to have to bring back uh, Dr. Jorge Dubrovsky from UC Davis, who spoke with us about uh, some wheat genetics a while back to see what, uh, what he knows about this. I can tell you The Economist is taking this threat very, very seriously. Speaking of threats to food supply, how about this article from uh, San Francisco Chronicle last month about how our appetite for abalone is putting the species at risk? To which I say, duh. State game wardens are finally noting that uh, a rash of abalone poaching along our northern California coast, combined with a huge increase in legally harvested mollusks, have left so few of the delicacies clinging to rocks that the population could be in jeopardy. We covered this story several years ago, and it certainly hasn't gotten any better. Frankly, I've been watching this whole thing evolve since the 1960s when I used to go out uh, gathering abalone with my dad as a kid. Abalone poaching has always been out of control, and until we get some game wardens out there to bust some of these jackasses, uh, we, we may see uh, commercial abalone fishing just disappear. In fact, we may see the whole abalone population crash and disappear. Of course, the problem here is that currently one abalone can fetch $100 on the black market. Which is not helping one bit that there are 100 fewer state fish and game wardens than there were 10 years ago. Which means we, I guess, have 230 or so California game wardens covering 1,100 miles of coastline trying to protect wildlife as far as 200 miles out to sea. It's not working too well. God, I just hate stories like this. I guess uh, there probably is no other solution at this point but to take it off the menu of restaurants in California. All right, a couple of uh, big-time science articles from New Scientist magazine. The first titled Deeper Impact by Matt Kaplan. Uh, No, not the Matt Kaplan of Planetary Radio. We may have mentioned this article a few weeks ago, but I I just love it. Here's the deal. We know the dinosaurs disappeared in what uh, had been, up till maybe 20 years ago, one of the great mysteries of biology. When Walter and Louis Alvarez of UC Berkeley uh, hypothesized that a, an asteroid impact on the Earth had caused climate change that wiped out the dinosaurs, uh, well, people slowly come ar- came around to that viewpoint. But in a very strange uh, coincidence, it was about that same time that there was a huge outpouring of volcanic rock in India, known as the Deccan Traps, which is in itself quite mysterious. The Deccan Traps lie far away from any tectonic plate boundaries. And there is no volcanism on the scale implied by the Deccan Traps anywhere on Earth currently. Of course, there are hot spots around the Earth uh, in various locations that are not at plate boundaries. The Hawaiian Islands come to mind. Yellowstone National Park comes to mind. But reconstructions of the Earth indicate there's a possibility that the meteor strike that hit in what is today Yucatan 65 million years ago may have sent a shockwave through the Earth, and when it arrived on the other end of the Earth, basically broke open the crust, allowing this uh, volcanic rock to erupt. Reconstructions indicate that India apparently would have been on the opposite end of the Earth at that time as the plates were shifting around. And if you look around the solar system... There are some uh, indications that this has happened elsewhere on our neighboring uh, sister planets. Mercury, for example, has a bunch of jumbled terrain on it that appears to be on the opposite end of the planet from 
the Caloris Basin, a large asteroid impact uh, from billions of years ago. We're going to have to go to our friends down at the Planetary Society to see what uh, they have to say about this, because I'm sure they have an opinion. Maybe we can get Matt Kaplan to have a few words about Matt Kaplan. And by the way, as of this summer, Planetary Radio has been replaced here at KDVS by a new program, Intercourse on Intercourse. We expect that our program and theirs will be having some intercourse in the not-too-distant future. And uh, have you ever wondered about how plastic, uh, making things out of plastic, may not be such a good idea if you're looking for longevity? Uh, We all have CDs that we're counting on lasting for uh, decades, aren't we? Well, article in New Scientist by James Mitchell Crow asks, Is plastic indestructible? Far from it. Is the reply, and some iconic 20th century artifacts are decaying fast. The question is, can we save our plastic heritage? Noted the article, many iconic artifacts of the past century, such as Bakelite radios and iPods to mundane goods such as nylon tights and Tupperware boxes, are made from plastics. For much of this period, it was breezily assumed that these materials were indestructible. Since the late 1970s, however, it's been clear that... uh, as these items have become museum pieces, we found out that this notion was sadly mistaken. Quoting Ivan Shashua, a conservation researcher at the National Museum of Denmark in Copenhagen, quote, plastic degradation is a ticking time bomb, unquote. She's apparently part of a network of European researchers racing to save our plastic heritage, including things like Barbie dolls, before they crumble into dust. Note of the magazine, our love affair with plastic stems in part from their flexibility. They can be molded into just about any shape imaginable and are available in consistencies ranging from rock hard to soft and squidgy. When it comes to longevity, though, they have a serious weak spot. In molecular terms, they're all polymers, clusters of long chain-like carbon-based molecules that can be shaped when warm but set firm once they cool. Over time, the chemical bonds that hold these chains together break as they are attacked by oxygen in the air or by ultraviolet photons in sunlight, or they're simply broken apart by heat. As I read the article, I was sort of surprised to learn that PVC, polyvinyl chloride, the thing that's uh, in so many of our uh, water pipes and sprinkler pipes, not to mention doors and windows, etc., decays autocatalytically, meaning it sort of turns into a bit of hydrochloric acid when it starts to compose, and then that (laughs) further accelerates the decomposition. Noted the magazine, the first sign of degradation is the emergence, often in as little as a decade, of a sticky, shiny surface that can be difficult to clean. Turns out there are additives that will delay this process, but they're expensive, and uh, even they don't postpone it forever. And the thing is, there doesn't appear to be any solution to really stopping this. They quote Nancy Bell of the Collective Care Department at the UK's National Archives in London that noted that this could all add up to an unparalleled threat to our cultural memory. The archives apparently house a range of plastic-based objects, including photographs and posters, and said Nancy Bell, within 20 to 35 years of collecting these objects, you start to see problems. I don't think we've ever been in this place in quite the same way before. And what does this mean to our CDs? Well, I'm not sure, but I don't think it's uh, anything good. And I'd like to talk about uh, the fossils of, uh, of um, our ancestors in the article in, in Smithsonian Magazine, but we're out of time today. Because i got some other things I'm planning to do with segment three. 
if you've listened to this program for a while, and we certainly hope that you have, you know that a lot of times we don't get to stuff right away, but we usually will get to it sooner or later. Might be best in this case if we went over to the physical anthropology department here at UC Davis uh, come the fall and uh, talk about what we now know about our evolutionary ancestors. An awful lot has changed since I took uh, Professor Henry McHenry's course back in the early 70s. Good God, that's four decades. Tough thing to contemplate for a guy turning 39. But let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.